0: Wednesday breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This
1: is 3CR breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Grab and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am.
2: double.
0: your
3: You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and it is Wednesday the third of June. How? And, sorry, in the studio we have Rob
0: and Jess.
3: And Idlewin will be joining a little bit later as well. How have you been? What have you been up to?
0: I've been okay. I've been pretty chill. Um, I'm kind of very, I'm not kind of, I'm very looking forward to the restrictions hopefully being eased. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's like the best thing, but I'm, it's just bringing me a little bit more hope than I sort of had been feeling prior to it's, some news. So
3: it's interesting now that some of the restrictions have lifted and soon we'll be able to go to cafes, but then it's kind of, I, I, I feel quite strange cause I, cause I haven't had that in my life for so long now. It's like, well, well how do I, how do I do this? Like I've kind of forgotten how to live that way in a weird kind of strange way. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's an interesting kind of experience at the moment. Um,
0: it's also that sort of feeling of, Um, I'm kind of feeling quite anxious of actually being able to do it also. Obviously, that hopeful feeling is great, but I'm also quite anxious about it. And I think a lot of other people are too.
3: Yeah, well, I feel like I've definitely noticed people relaxing a bit too comfortably. And I think the reason I haven't got my hopes up is that I feel like there will probably be a, you know, the restrictions will come back down again to some degree, I don't know what. Um, But I guess sort of, keeping it in the long term of, you know, this is, this is for a long time. It's not just sort of a two month period. Um, Having said all that, I did go for a nice walk on the weekend. I was, I was some friends down the Maripanong and it was really lovely because we're walking past and one of my friends pointed out, so there's some, there's a lot of industrial uh, sites around there and some of them look reasonably abandoned and empty, although obviously owned by someone. And my friend was saying, oh, I'd be great if like we could keep all these spaces and use them as like you know art spaces or whatever. And it, it really would be. Like there are some wonderful uh, old sort of factories and buildings down there. And potentially it could be a really wonderful space for have these kind of experimental, uh kind of like carriage works in Sydney or sort of various other examples across the world mm-hmm. um, of repurposing these, these spaces for for an arts community in Melbourne. Um it'd be a wonderful little little place for it. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a lovely sort of, uh, opportunity to, to get out for a bit.
0: Um, Definitely. I think it's quite beneficial when you actually do leave your area of, you know, vacate where you usually are, even inner cities and being able to venture outside and actually seeing the possibilities of branching out and, um, you yeah, experimenting with your surroundings.
3: Yeah. So on the show for today, Day. What have you got lined up for us, Jess?
0: Um, I have quite an exciting interview, actually. Um, I spoke to the team at Pink Ember Studio. Um, Pink Ember Studio, if no-one knows about it, is a queer run um, cooperative of artists in Coburg, Melbourne, who bring art and workshops to the community. Um, with this pandemic, um, they've had to shut its doors on the studio but they've prevailed in continuing their work online. And this is something I've been really interested in looking at for the arts community. So they have a number of online workshops um, in their newly created series called Pink ever's Quarantine Club. Um, so I just chatted to the team there about their workshop and how the arts community in Australia is coping and feeling during this, commu- um, this pandemic.
3: Yeah, no, it sounds wonderful. Um, it's interesting to see how, I guess, actually what new forms of, Uh, like community art or how that kind of evolves in a more digital space as well, given that it's traditionally been very physical, physically sort of grounded, um, whether it leads to something kind of more interesting or different or new or unique or or what that kind of inspires. It could be, yeah, interesting moment. Um, For me, I'll be speaking with Ishita Chatterjee. So we've had her on the show before uh, speaking about informal settlements, particularly within Mumbai, India. So she'll be speaking about the current impacts of COVID-19 with many communities over there. And actually some of the really fascinating and uplifting examples of how communities are working together to really address some of the challenges that they're facing where simply the government cannot. So that should be a really interesting interview.
0: You're listening
4: to 3CR Community Radio eight five five am on digital and online.
5: 3CR Radical Radio.
1: Exhibiting 300 artworks by 286 Indigenous artists, currently in or recently released from prison in Victoria, Confined 11 serves as a strong visual metaphor for the over-representation of First Nations Australians in the criminal justice system. This year, The Torch presents the annual Confined exhibition online at thetorch.org.au. All artworks are for sale and 100% of the sale price goes directly to the artist. Help us paint a brighter future Head to the Torch.org.au from may the fourteenth to explore Confined Eleven a three CR supporter
5: You could be anything of everything but I most be
6: Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now.
5: Love
3: listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and we're coming up into our next interview. So with many developed nations starting to move out of lockdown, many developing nations are still very much in the thick of it. In fact, many are really at the start of quite an incredible challenge. At the time of recording, India had 175,000 known cases of COVID-19 with no signs of slowing. And with one in six people in India living within informal settlements, they are facing immense challenges, with many unable to take orders like shelter in place or wash hands. But to help us understand the situation more, we've invited back to the show Ishita Chatterjee, uh, a researcher at the Informal Urbanism Hub at the University of Melbourne. Ishita, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you very much.
3: So you've been researching one of the poorest neighbourhoods in Mumbai, mm-hmm. known as Shivaji mm-hmm. Nagar. What is the current situation of the impact of COVID-19 within this community and many other informal settlements across India?
4: To understand the impact, I'll give you a little background about the settlement. Uh, The settlement is situated beside Asia's largest dumping ground, and it currently houses 11.5% of Mumbai's informal settlement population. There's a severe lack of health facilities. Also, there's 60% of the residents have to buy water. And there's also a severe lack of toilets. So one toilet per 145 people. And this is also the tuberculosis hotspot. So the residents already have a very compromised respiratory immunity system. So due to the COVID-19, what's happened? This settlement, uh, the ward, the municipal ward in which this settlement is located, and another one, Dharabi, which probably a lot of people are aware of, so those two wards have uh, the highest number of COVID-19 cases, whereas this board also has the highest fatality rate, which is 9.7% right now, and it is more than double of uh, the national fatality rate.
3: Yeah, wow. And I guess in kind of response to all of this, on March 24, the Indian government announced that it was going to enforce a national Mm -hmm. lockdown, Mm -hmm. was the impact on an an informal settlement like Shivaji Naja and across also many other
4: informal Mm -hmm. settlements? the national lockdown, what it did is it restricted movement and restricting movement has been successful in a lot of countries and even in parts of India. But in a settlement like Shivajanagar where most of the people are daily wage workers, restricted movement created new problems. Within uh, three days, I think people had run out of food, water, medicine. And because essential services were also closed down in this part of the settlement, when, when the numbers were rising, the markets were closed down. They also did not have any other way of going and buying, even if they had the money. Along with COVID-19, there were issues related to lockdown, which the settlement was forced to face.
3: As a result of the lockdown, did many people flee the informal settlement or did many people stay? And how did that have an impact on the cases of COVID-19?
4: So, yes, I think you might have been seeing pictures of the urban exodus, a lot of migrants walking back, not particularly from this settlement, because this settlement, it is a bit peculiar. Most of them are rag pickers and they actually work behind the, the garbage dump and other ancillary facilities. Um, so this settlement in the Exodus, but yes, it, it, it has happened in multiple other areas. Mm. The Mumbai is again a peculiar case. The pictures that has been coming out, it is from Delhi, not, and from Kerala. And people who have been going to Delhi, they are from the poorer states, Bihar, UP, and they're also going from uh, Bengal. So that's like a long distance. Whereas I think Mumbai, what has happened, they generally come from within the state. So it has been handled a bit different here. Uh, Mm. But the urban exodus has been happening, yes, all over India.
3: And so as the pandemic has unfolded and these kind of impacts have started to be seen, how has the national response by the Indian government changed during this time? Or has it
4: changed? Yes, it has changed. It has evolved. The complaint is, of course, that it has been more reactionary rather than being more preemptive, like the lockdown was a preemptive measure, and which is something which has worked in other countries, but it didn't work in certain parts of India. So first, the government, when it announced the relief measures, it announced that you would have to produce your ration card and you're eligible for the free food. So in Shivaji Nagar, uh, 35% of the people do not have ration cards. The biggest issue with daily wage workers and informal workers is that they're undocumented. So one in three wouldn't have access to food. But right now the government has been changing all of those rules and anybody, every undocumented worker can access food. And the government is also dealing with uh, local MLAs dispersing the food rather than the state itself doing it. So they're looking at different measures and the migrant issue, uh, the government is also uh, providing shelter, food, and transport facilities right now though there are a lot of inconsistencies in there also you'll probably see the news I think but it's taking steps.
3: As you say how the responses have been very reactionary rather than proactive do you think there are any sort of emerging issues that they haven't thought about addressing yet and it'll gonna be a sort of reactionary approach?
4: I'm not sure if they have thought about it and they are taking some precautionary measures to counter that but. Once the pandemic is over, rebuilding, I am not sure how some of these poorer settlements, they're going to deal with it. Whatever resources they have, they already have really less resources. It will be exhausted. Mm. And um, the health, especially in the case of Shivajanagar, the health of the residents are so compromised. If some of them have been exposed to COVID-19, I don't know how they're going to deal with it in the future.
3: I guess with a lot of uh, informal settlements is that instead of relying too much on government support, they start to sort of take initiatives and challenges into their own hands. And we've discussed on the show before how many informal Mm -hmm. settlements operate almost independently from governments and have their own kind of network systems and communities. How have you seen informal settlements and, could their communities and perhaps also NGOs start to address COVID-19 on their own accord?
4: So that has been probably one of India's success stories that uh, the NGOs and citizen groups, they have actually come out. I think the middle class woke up this time. The In, in case of Shivanji Nagar, the NGO actually started working like the state, I would say. I was The, the responsibilities that the state would have d- taken, the NGO started taking that. So As early as February, it stopped all outside contact because they realized that they are a threat to the settlement dwellers rather than the settlement dwellers being a threat. So, what they did was they listed some of the residents as volunteers. And what that does is you have people who are really committed to the settlement. They are residents from there and they are from that community. So, the relief measures um, actually reached every settlement. You know, all those issues didn't crop up here. Everybody got relief. And also, there was a solidarity within the group. So whenever some area would receive a second round of uh, relief more quickly than it was planned, they would also say, no, we've actually uh, received it yesterday. The other area was supposed to receive it today. So I've heard stories of that. Then I talked to you about the lack of water facilities. 60% has to buy from outside private suppliers. But because of the lockdown, they had no access to the private suppliers. So the residents who had piped water started sharing it with them. Or On a, another day, they wouldn't really even get along together. But this has changed all of them.
3: From all these lessons and all these examples we're seeing of communities uh, sort of taking it into their own hands, do you think there are any lessons that developed cities could adopt in their response to COVID-19?
4: Yes, I do think. I mean, uh, the message of resilience. So... Uh, What this settlement showed me was that when you have a severe lack of resources, how you come together and you become resilient. And what this pandemic showed us is that even wealthy nations with very good health systems, they had a lack of resources. So yes, coming together and everybody has to play their part. That was the other thing. So it trickled down that the state worked with the NGOs now. In India, that's what is happening, and then the NGO also had to work with the community. So all those volunteers became community leaders, and then each uh, resident played their part. So yes, there are lessons which I think everybody can learn.
3: Absolutely. I guess some of the other discussion about what's happening, and particularly with in India and informal settlements, is that this might be an opportunity to sort of improve access to some of the basic services. Given that obviously people can't hand wash easily, perhaps this is an opportunity to install more uh, services and stations to be able to do so what do you think it would take to sort of seize this moment as an opportunity to really increase access to basic services within informal settlements
4: mm. you actually brought up two very good points one is the lack of tapped water and i was just hoping when the government was creating awareness they would say here is a mug of water and this is how you wash your hand when you have a mug of water instead of tapped water so i would imagine there'll be some sensitivity from the government side. That's what has been the complaint, that you're not aware of how most of the people in the country live. So some of the measures work for a very small, you know, population. The other thing that you ask, uh, sometimes your access to services in these settlements is contingent on whether you are recognized by the government. So if you're a notified slum, you can get access to services, whereas if the government doesn't even know your existence and you don't have any connection, you don't get these services. So one of the things I would imagine is that no matter what is your status, whether you've been regularized, you've been notified, these services should be provided because this makes a difference.
3: To finish off on, people have also been discussing how COVID-19, it sort of reveals a lot of both the system failures that we have and touched on some of those today, particularly in terms of recognition of of settlements, but also it sort of reveals the the sort of more positive sides of communities and humanity and how we sort of work together. In the context of the work and research that you're doing, what do you think COVID-19 has in particular revealed about informal settlements.
4: I think it connects back to your earlier question about resilience. But the other thing is, how much difference can one person do? We realized it. I don't, sometimes there are stories that one person could send back all of these migrants home. So, and I mean, this is not a person who, who is from the informal settlement. This, this is a, an elite from Mumbai. But I think sometimes we just, we don't realize that we can make a significant change with a little step and that should be that is what we should take back from this pandemic.
3: Both positive and negative, the effect can be. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Ashita, thank you very much for giving us an update on what's happening, particularly within the informal settlements in Mumbai and India.
4: Thank you for having me, and it was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You're listening to Three CR Community Radio, eight by five five AM.
3: An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the Government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together.
1: A 3CR supporter.
0: You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now we'll be getting into our tram thoughts. This week, my tram thought, or more accurately, my ISO thought, has sprung up out of something that has been in the public's eyes and hearts this past week. After the brutal killing of George Floyd in America at the hands of police officers, massive protests and now and riots have broken out across America. What struck me and what made me intensely and more deeply worried on the issue was seeing how easy it was for a political leader, in this case, Donald Trump, who I don't like dwelling on, um, but I find this is incredibly important to talk about. Um, He was able to share his violent and hateful comments to the world um, via social media. He tweeted erratically. Him, him tweeting erratically is not unusual, um, but in this case, it was most worrisome when he stated, um, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, um, while endorsing and threatening military action on civilians if looting and other activity continues. This tweet was flagged and given notice, but still made accessible to the public as it contained important information from a government official. The tweet was blocked from engagement um, to, to attempt to stop the continuation of violent interaction online. This whole debacle got me really thinking about the ever debatable topic of the internet being a gateway for hate crimes and how it could possibly be regulated successfully in the future, if possible at all. Um, This is a much talked about debate, um, but I think after this particular week, um, it's incredibly important to think about. Um, For those who are accustomed to the wide world of social media, we know there is an array of platforms to express opinion, but to also incite hate and fear into the community. So I personally believe these comments have harmed the community immensely and have invoked worldwide um, stance um, against a leader um, when being put on a, such a ha- hateful large scale. Um, I'm going to put this first question to you, Rob. How do you think hateful comments like we've seen from Trump impacts the community? Does it? Do you think it really does have an impact?
3: Well, I think there's the there's a lot of the discussion that's already been happening about obviously how it's encouraging violence and division at an already difficult time but something I also find quite troubling about it is I think it actually erodes a trust in government and institutions so hypothetically even if you didn't vote for Trump I think doubts would appear whether the system is even in your favor because it enabled a Trump's election and B for these kind of comments to be made when they're deliberately perhaps against you and your community and so i kind of feel that uh, if, if you if you were someone from a community that he is you know inciting hatred on it's kind of reflecting that this is what democracy is now this is how it happens and we have a system that enabled this to be happening and for that kind of person to be elected and I think that'll encourage a lack of trust and faith in the system that mm-hmm. this is just how government is and you just, like some people might feel that that's just completely unfair un- and rightly so. And so that's actually one of the things I'm quite worried about is mm-hmm. it really, and that might encourage people not even to vote anymore because I feel that the system is not actually really ever in their favour. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really dangerous for democracy. So that's actually what I'm quite worried about with this.
0: No, uh, it's very interesting that you do bring that up because um, pre- Trump himself was actually also tweeting after this, after this whole scenario with his comments about the shooting looting. Um, he said himself, um, "Twitter is a sham," um, along the lines of, "I'm not quoting Trump right now." Um, to do with saying um, it's messing with the presidential elections and it is losing trust in. Americans um, when social media is either A, regulated or not regulated and sort of it's, this is coming to my next sort of point, Um, what sort of system do we want to see regulating it? Um, This isn't just an American problem in all areas from racism against minorities to a police state, this is a worry. Um, After the mosque shooting in New Zealand in 2019 and many hate crimes online in Australia against minorities and particular members of the community, Australia is also battling its own freedom of speech issue. Um, Freedom of speech is a massive component to this debate. In 2019, police um, raided a journalist's um, home over reports about war crimes in Afghanistan and surveillance in Australia. Um, There were also closed court proceedings about... um, Alleged wrongdoing by the exposed exposure exposure of the alleged wrongdoing by the Australian government concerning trade negotiations negotiations with Timor Leste. Um, in these scenarios, free speech is incredibly important in the media and online. Um, there, this is information that the public needs to know. So, what my next question would be, and it is quite a, I don't think it's a question that can be answered by us. Um, but who should be the people that regulate hate crime versus freedom of speech online? My thoughts are that perhaps maybe we need to establish a almost global or at least regional um, organisation or, or group of organisations to sort of regulate this rather than having the government perhaps regulate it as maybe we have seen Jacinda Arden working with social media corporation Facebook to help regulate that sort of um, hate crime online. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think it will just continue to get messy and freedom of speech will be taken away if the government does continue to get involved? Should an organisation be established to avoid pay crimes online?
3: I think also just sort of like zooming out a little bit before kind of answering that... I think mean, the issue with the nature of a lot of these platforms and big tech generally is that they are private entities and so the goal is profit. That's what they're set up to do. Mm-hmm. But by the nature of these platforms, they have significant repercussions on politics and democracy unlike other private entities. You know, say, take for example, I don't know, like a toothpaste company. Like that doesn't have a significant impact on on the way that democracy structures. So it's kind of like... They're acting almost like a public utility or a service to some degree, yet Mm -hmm. they're at their core, they have private motivations. And so I think that's a really, that actually needs to really be addressed first. Like, what is its core function in society? And as a result, I think the regulation needs to come in response to that. Mm
2: -hmm. And I mean,
3: unlike in Parliament, where there is debate and there is different opinions, and that's for political gains and sort of debate. Mm for a platform like Twitter or Facebook or various others, it it kind of uses outrage as a form for increasing commercial gains to retain users on the site and sort of sucking you into a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like a perverse platform, which is serving kind of like a public good is now resulting in perverse outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I kind of think about with all of this is that social media, I think it, I actually think it is too big a thing for humans to really process and deal with. And I think we need to sort of quite seriously reconsider what are the limits of what we as a society can handle and withstand. And I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, and reflect on the topic of is it okay that we can't handle this technology and this this thing that we've created and really come into grips with that because i think we've always had an attitude of we can handle what we've created it's just a matter of sort of using various regulations and and policies and what have you but i think we do actually need to reconsider is this just something that we cannot live with as a human society Mm -hmm. um I guess the other thing is that as soon as someone starts to regulate it, it's, it's almost too much power for one organisation or body because you are, in a sense, filtering and altering discourse and that comes with significant responsibility and power. And then also the way that it's even regulated today, it's kind of like that's the new sweatshop of regulators because you've got people sitting in you know rooms moderating content and they themselves are facing trauma and various other things and it's, it's kind of removing... All responsibility from the organisation, the social media organisation. Yet they're having so much power. Um, so I just think I think it just needs to be a reflection on going to the, the sort of the the central nature of what these social media companies are, and then sort of developing the solution from there.
0: Mm. I did um, enjoy your sort of mentality around sort of Pandora's box. Like we've opened it, but how do we actually control it? You know, I I feel like we can't. Obviously, we cannot go back on what we've created. And I think the main issue is how do we move forward from here? Um, Just back to the um, tweet. So when Trump did tweet that, it was blocked out, um, but still continued to make its way around online. Um, That's um, also on your point. Like regulating it is just quite. I don't think anyone knows how to actually do it yet, and. It's sort of defeated the purpose of eradicating the problem um, by trying to regulate it, um, but not being able to because the internet is—you can't delete anything from the internet. Like it's when it's on the internet, it's there forever. Do you do you think that social media and the internet is continuing its purpose to build a community, or instead now turning it into more of a playing field for hate to be committed? In your personal opinion, on your personal experience online
3: yeah well, i think like any tool it can have a good intention but as as equal as there are good intentions there are equally ways that can, it can be used for perverse and dangerous outcomes mm-hmm. and so i think this is a tool that's been created where perhaps the holes are too great and where the power in one entity is too large and where the outcome is Too critical that I I I do wonder if it needs to be reined in more. And I think yes, it does bring many wonderful things. But I think you have to acknowledge that if you want those wonderful things, and you're not going to have a regulated because you know free market or whatever you want to say you then going to have all the negative sides too. And so I, there's kind of like, there's almost two ways that this progresses. We either regulate it by a government institution or, or something else. And then there are issues of controlling what passes and what doesn't and what's the agenda behind the filtering of the content. Or alternatively, you let it rain free and then you get all the positives, but then you equally get all the negatives. But that's through the protection of sort of quote unquote free speech. So it's kind of like you lose, there's issues either way. Um, and I, I really don't know how it's going to be addressed.
4: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
1: So for our next interview, we have Alicia, the Policy and Research Coordinator at ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, to discuss the recent murmurings of the US government to move towards nuclear testing. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning. Good morning. So Trump holding the big red button to nuclear power is is a scenario that we've all been afraid of since he entered office. I suppose these would be practice tests, but what does this signify and how did this come about?
7: So this is a a really shocking and and terrifying uh, consideration on the part of the U.S. government uh, to even consider restarting nuclear testing uh, is as senseless as it could be catastrophic for human health and the environment uh, worldwide. So it's uh, it's really a shocking and, and terrifying uh, discussion to be had, even if we don't know that that this will actually proceed to to action.
1: Mm. And as you just said, we're not sure yet whether these practice tests will be held. But I suppose all I can think of is the world is in, at the moment, especially in such a state of crisis. You know, we've got the pandemic going, and we've seen economies and systems just collapsing in on themselves. What do you think the significance is of these? I suppose considerations in a time like this because it feels to me as if I suppose the the us is kind of trying to show its power in a very insta- uh, unstable time
7: no, absolutely uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, it's clearly uh, not the time not that it ever is the time but particularly now to be considering an action that would have you know additional put additional stress on uh, health care systems, on human health and environmental health. Mm. Uh, we've seen what nuclear tests do from the legacy of decades of uh, nuclear tests in the atmosphere and underground. Uh, and we know that, that, frankly, we can't afford another health crisis at this time.
1: Mm, absolutely. And I suppose it's worth discussing U.S.'s track record on this matter. I mean, we have this picture of nuclear testing uh especially during the cold war and of course u.s and russia were head-to-head during that time u.s hold the largest track record for actually um testing nuclear weapons i suppose could you discuss the stance of nuclear uh, of the u.s on nuclear power on nuclear weapons and their resistance to i suppose change or keeping up with the rest of the
7: world Yeah, I know. I think it's a great point to put the U.S. and other nuclear armed countries in comparison with the rest of the world. Mm. Because what we are seeing from the vast majority of the world is a rejection of not only nuclear testing, but also uh, nuclear use and any nuclear weapons activities. Uh, And we see that in uh, two really important multilateral uh, anti-nuclear treaties. Mm. So one of those is, of course, the, the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty, which uh, has nearly global support, but unfortunately has not entered into force because a few countries, including the U.S., has not ratified that treaty. Uh, And then, of course, we have the the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was just adopted uh, in 2017 at the United Nations uh, by 122 countries, and is now well on its way to also enter into force. Uh, and that treaty upholds uh, the anti-nuclear testing norm, uh, as well as putting additional prohibitions on nuclear use and production, uh, and ex- et cetera. Uh, and with regards to that treaty, we actually just saw a, a country that, uh, where nuclear weapons were tested back in the 1950s, join the treaty just in the past couple of weeks, uh, recognizing that for the people who've really seen what nuclear testing does, uh, they don't want uh, any of these activities to continue and they, they want them to be banned under international law.
1: And I'm I'm so glad you brought up the prohibition of nuclear weapons uh, because America and, of course, Australia has not signed it. Um, so it remains one of those situations where it's a wonderful piece of policy which is kind of hanging in limbo at the moment due to these the significant powers kind of not, not ratifying or not signing it even. Uh, I, I suppose talking a little bit more depth, on historical testing in America. It's been 28 years since the last tests. Um, There's, of course, horror stories we hear about radiation effects and all that sort of stuff. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these historical tests have had on the effect on the land and the people?
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we've seen is that uh, not only are nuclear weapons tests um, horrific in their, you know, immediate consequences, but what's, you know, really... uh, shocking and uh consequential is their lasting consequences Mm. uh and you know personally i was uh in new mexico this summer uh and i was at the uh commemoration for the um anniversary of the trinity nuclear test which is the first uh nuclear test in new mexico in uh, 1945 and uh, i was in a room full of people in the the small community right around that test site and uh everybody had, you know, multiple, sometimes dozens of family members who had contracted cancer uh, or other diseases related to radiation. So it's uh, today, you know, in, in, in 20, it was in 2019, uh, you know, so many years after that test had taken place. And that's, it's not just there. That's, that's what you see um, in every place where there have been nuclear tests is that, people are still dealing with the consequences Mm. um, and seeing loved ones die. And I suppose,
1: obviously, as part of ICANN, you come up against this argument a lot. But I suppose when we hear the proposition that nuclear power, nuclear is safe, that there can be these nuclear, I suppose, not just weapons, but also just the use of nuclear, the exploit of nuclear is safe. What would be your most simple comeback to that?
7: Uh, ask the people who have been uh, impacted by nuclear weapons. Mm. You know, ask the people who are the real experts on nuclear weapons. Uh, do nuclear weapons make them more safe? Mm. And the answer is no. Uh, mm. Who does nuclear weapons make more safe? Frankly, no one. But the people who believe that they make them more safe uh, haven't been anywhere near an actual nuclear explosion. They don't. They don't actually know. Uh, the real truth about these weapons and what they do
1: mm. yeah just especially comes back to me just america's historical track record with nuclear weapons and the postulation that goes about it especially with trump it it all creates a bit of a crucible i'm not very comfortable with <laughs> um i suppose looking at global governance on this issue now you have mentioned the two kind of massive pieces of pol- like UN kind of backdoor sort of stuff, uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about America's bilateral agreements that they're currently in, and a little bit more about whether they're holding, whether they need to be built on, or anything like that. I suppose just starting off with it, could you tell us a little bit about these bilateral agreements and why they're less effective than something that's multilateral? I suppose.
7: Sure. I mean, I think we've seen the the evidence for that under this uh, past uh, administration in the U.S. where. Trump has taken the decision to unilaterally pull out of a number of bilateral agreements um, and, or, you know, not take decisions to extend uh, nuclear restraint agreements. And, uh, you know, I think when you have a a multilateral agreement with um, dozens or hundreds of parties, uh, there's more it's, it's a lot more difficult to blow up that accord when just one country decides that they don't want to adhere to the terms anymore. Um, so it's really, I think, the mul- the importance of multilateral uh, international law to constrain nuclear weapons is that uh, these weapons affect everyone in the world. A, po- a possible nuclear explosion uh, would have worldwide consequences. So um, every country should be able to participate in building up the norm against nuclear weapons and enforcing it. Uh, and one country shouldn't be able to destroy uh, a, a body of, of uh, bilateral um, nuclear restraints.
1: Absolutely, and I suppose that that comes to the hard, impossible question. But what do you think is going to be needed to shift America, either through public advocacy or greater, you know, the T P? in w as i'm going to shorten it to uh what do you think it will require a shift into this because i mean this considerations it, it's it's terrifying it's a terrifying moment for the entire world to see what the u.s could be capable of with this sort of weaponry um even on a testing basis uh yeah what do you what do you think it might take
7: well i think we're already seeing uh within the u.s and also within all nuclear armed countries um the the popular resistance to these weapons really coming to the fore so even if within the defense establishments or the foreign policy establishments in these countries uh you know leaders will articulate how important they think these weapons are for their security uh you know people in those countries are having none of it and you see that uh in cities across the world adopting resolutions calling on their government to join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, including capitals like Washington DC in the United States, uh, for example, or uh, members of parliament speaking up about also working to get their government to join uh, the ban on nuclear weapons. So, you know, I think it, we do see that there is popular resistance to nuclear weapons and people speaking out uh, and, you know, it's time that the, the, the political elites listen to, to their people on this issue.
1: Wonderful. Well, I think we'll wrap it up with that <laughs> kind of warming, warming point on a very scary topic. Um, I suppose for anyone who is involved, they can obviously follow your stories at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Uh, is there anything else I suppose we should be hooking into or looking into with this
7: uh, yeah, I would say just um, check out our website, ICANW.org, or follow us on, on social media at NuclearBan. Um, we'll be putting out a lot more information and resources about nuclear weapons use and testing uh, leading up to the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki this August. So um, definitely follow us and check it out, and we'll be sharing a lot of information in the coming weeks and months.
1: And that was Alicia from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, to discuss the recent considerations of the US government to begin nuclear testing or restart nuclear testing.
0: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM.
3: lack black baby. A comeback, slap black pink on the Chevy. <laughs>
5: To my tone,
4: you ain't catching you a Tony. A walk when they walk, when you running with a shotty. Why you running from us?
3: Why you messing with us? We ain't got no guns, we just let the bears witness. The grizzly,
6: maybe polar. You ain't ready. You ain't ready. Ready, roll up. Pull a machete, cut the bamboo
3: paper. Let's roll out, baby, loud. listen to 3CR Wednesday breakfast and up next we have Dr Tasha Finney so she is an architectural urbanist senior research tutor and program lead on the city design MA School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art her work is focused on housing the city and urban change, as well as alternate housing and neighbourhood models. Tasha, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for having me.
3: So I wanted to ask, over your career and your time looking at urbanism and housing, how have you seen society's understanding of home change, and particularly like our relationship to home and homely spaces?
5: Well, I think um, certainly when I started my graduate work, so in the early 2000s, um home domesticity, if I understand that to be a kind of socio-political um, condition that animates home, um, wasn't something that we really talked about. We just accepted the idea that um, home, hu- the housing we lived in, the modern family that we existed in, you know, two parents and, and gender-specific children, um, was a, an unquestioned ahistorical fact. And I think what's transforming more and more with a more and more amplification and intensity more recently is a dissatisfaction with that and a, and a searching around for how we find our way out of it and a recognition of the relationship between the spatial performance of our housing and our lived subjectivities and our relationship to ourselves and the spaces in which we constitute ourselves. Mm.
3: And so how do you see, uh, moving forwards, our relationship with housing changing?
5: Oh, I think we have to, we're going to hopefully, <laughs> my, my hope is that we're going to find the space and the conditions of experimentation to begin to work out what new spatial arrangements are and what new relationships we can develop with each other that aren't dependent on blood ties, that aren't, but still are focused on questions of intimacy and care. And that enable us to find that with different group, different kinds of people dip from different generations, um, focused on different things, particularly when it comes to questions of addressing um, all of the complexities that are coming with climate change.
3: So, on that topic of alternate housing models, we're starting Mm. to see many more cooperative housing developments start to emerge, particularly within Europe. What do you think this is expressing about shifts in social norms and what is this a reaction to?
5: Uh, So in one way, people will tell you that it's a reaction to housing affordability. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, of course, there's an element of truth in that. But I think the other thing that increasingly it's responding to is a craving that we have for new um, relationships with each other, mm. new levels of intimacy and care. I think ironically just at the moment where on the one hand we have the internet enabling us to work as re- more and more remotely from each other, to work at home, mm. to work regionally, to do all these things, and equally more and more um we find the new housing that we're producing for ourselves is fully isolating us as individuals within the group so each bedroom has an ensuite we don't even share family bathrooms anymore mm. we're craving our collective life together mm. so i think in some ways the housing that we're uh, big th- this Cooperative housing and a new new housing like Nightingale, like the Bau Group, and is really allowing us to begin to explore what those collective possibilities are mm. again.
3: So, to people who are not as familiar with Bau Group, and what yeah. is the Bau Group? Uh,
5: the Bau Group is this fantastic. Uh, it's called a completion cooperative that was started in Germany initially in cities like Berlin to um, to uh, address. Um, remaining uh, holes in the urban fabric in the very dense um courtyard block urban fabric of a city like berlin that was still had these remnant holes from world war Two, mm. and it was a, a mechanism that enabled the um, owner of the land which was often the state to put to put out a call for expressions of interest for groups to get together and make a claim over um taking hold taking control of that land and building housing on it for themselves and so it was usually apartments mm. um and the land would be given away at you know almost no cost mm. And the group, and it's a completion cooperative because the group will pull resources, uh, they're led by an architect, they'll be a cooperative up to the point of the completion of the building. And then there's an open question about whether they continue as a cooperative or they just revert to a standard ownership model. Mm. Now, many of them choose to continue on as, as a cooperative. And that, that obviously has a whole lot of governance consequences and things for the way they live together. But what's been really interesting about it is that they've, it's only been around for 20 years um they produce under ten percent of housing in Germany, mm-hmm. and they're having a marked effect on what the consumer of housing, new new buyers of housing are demanding of mainstream developers in Germany. Mm. And so they've been able to, and because what and for us in the MA city design at the Royal College of Art, what's very interesting about these projects is that they're a eccentric client group led by an architect who use the design process as a mechanism for negotiating their differences mm-hmm. rather than the standard development model, which is lowest common denominator, let's maximise our exposure to what the market wants and let's try nothing new. Mm-hmm. And so this group come together and, they'll, and they'll, they'll negotiate and discuss over some period of time what it is that they want to be together and how they want to do things differently, which is resulting in these really interesting innovations in housing.
3: And I guess by nature, that introduces a, like a level of diversity within the housing. Stock yeah, it's at, in-
5: it's fantastic. Yeah.
3: yeah. And so in addition to like housing, we're starting to see housing used to help address sort of issues of loneliness and yeah, isolation in yeah, the community. Yeah, yeah. How can also housing contribute positively to the ecological crisis? Uh, Seeing the, something as more than just a human
5: Yeah, yeah. This is where I think the greatest potential of it is. And and I don't even know what this means yet. I mean, uh, the whole thing about this innovation in housing is that we, we it's very difficult to know in advance who will become as a consequence of the transformation. Mm. And so we can spec on it, and, and we need to begin to find the forums to do that. But I think that one of the most interesting possibilities of it is to say, um, we need to think the, the, the question of climate change is much more, it's a systemic and an institutional problem. It's not a problem that we can address as individuals through things like recycling, though, of course, this helps. Mm. So we need to ask questions about every aspect at multiple scales of what we're doing institutionally, and a huge one is housing and the way that we're organising housing. And we need to ask that question of institutional forms such as the modern family that we take for granted, but we need to also ask it of how we accommodate um, and uh, centralise or decentralise the human in more complex um, ecological um, understandings. Mm. So how do we take account of... um, the non human mm. as an extension of our kinship systems, yeah. and I think we 've got an enormous amount to learn from indigenous structures of knowledge that would never isolate a thing from a complex ecology of relationship, and we need to experiment with decentering ourselves in mm. terms of the needs of that complex system and then saying, "What would housing look like if we decentered our own needs?" Mm. And it's a, it's just a, it's it's a design problem in a sense, right? About designing that as a network of, of cognition almost,
3: and sort of reconsidering what our priorities are, and, right? Yeah. But
5: also it's a design problem around, um, around what would housing look like if the pri- if the priority was, you know, and I think about this in in the context of where my fam, you know. Just where I'm familiar with in Sydney, for example, I'm originally from Sydney, and we have a very specific uh, cabbage palm in the neighbourhood that my family live in. And I found myself the other day thinking, you know, and they like to live in the drainage armpits of um, the coastal fringe of mm. Sydney. And I was thinking the other day, how would you, how would you decenter ourselves and recenter that palm and mm. all of its relationships with the fruit, flying foxes, with the the possums, with mm. the cicadas, with all of these different how would you decenter us from the question of housing and centre it and what would housing begin to look like? And I, I it's just such an interesting design problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I,
3: and before finishing up, I wanted to ask, so in relation to particularly considering housing as an environmental sort of, I guess you could say almost machine yeah. um, and sort of thinking about the Bow group and models, why yeah. has Australia been much slower, do you think, uh, in comparison to European countries in particular?
5: Uh, the advantage that the European countries have – and people will tell you that it's cultural and I just think that – I don't think that's right um, – is that they have in their D- their legal and regulatory DNA a history of cooperative ownership? That means that it's easy for them when these things, these discursive um, ideas shift to shift into new modes of being together. So the Craftwork uh, Cooperative in Zurich in Switzerland, for example, started in the 1980s as part of a youth anarchist movement, first of all directed at questions of um, the city and youth access to the city and then they realised they could do better mm. by producing housing and they've lent on a 19th century agricultural cooperative. So they have that. It's very hard for us to do that because we don't have it in our DNA and as mm. for anyone out there that's listening will know about Nightingale, it took a decade of really hard work, mm. transforming local law so that it could begin to even operate like the Bau group and system in in mm. Germany. So the work that has to be done, and this is work that all of us that are either professionally trained need to be doing is to is to be transforming that legal and regulatory environment to enable it to happen yeah
3: absolutely well Tasha thank you very so much for coming onto the show my pleasure uh, that was Dr. Tasha Finney she's an architectural urbanist senior research tutor and program lead on the city design MA School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art <laughs> The last <laughs> of the the the
0: Is a queer run cooperative of artists whose mission is to create spaces for artists to make and sell work and be a part of a community. Pink Amber Studios is in Coburg, Melbourne and includes workshops, studio spaces, gallery spaces and classes to share skills at the studio. Pink Amber Studio began in December 2018 and has worked towards making a space in Coburg that supports artists and provides access to affordable art and learning opportunities. With the pandemic of 2020, Pink Ember Studios has shut its doors on the studio, but has prevailed in continuing their work online. They have a number of online workshops in a newly created series entitled Pink Ember's Quarantine Club, which encourages the community to continue to come together to work creatively online. Pink Ember Studio Workshop Manager, Ife, and Gallery Manager, Aaron, join us today on the show to chat about their creative initiatives during this pandemic. Thanks for joining us.
6: Jessica,
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm incredibly excited about this. Um, I did come across the um, Quarantine Club series um, on Instagram, at Pink Amber Studio. If anyone wants to check it out, I'll put it on the rundown later after the show. Um, But I guess we'll begin this interview um, with a quick background. Uh, Earlier this year, figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics revealed that the arts sector has been hit the hardest by nationwide lockdown, with jobs um, in the arts and recreation industry down 27% um, between the beginning of March and the end of April. Um, That's only gotten worse. Um, Wages between that same period have also dropped by 20%. The federal government showed a complete lack of support for the arts and entertainment industry amid the COVID pandemic, after it was revealed the arts and entertainment industry was left out completely of of the JobKeeper scheme. Um, I'm going to put this question to you both, um, take turns in answering. Uh, What has been the biggest struggle during this pandemic for you both, um, whether that be working in your work or being part of the arts community in Australia?
6: I think the the hardest part for us is that we kind of fell between two places that were being supported. We don't have any employees, we're volunteer-run, so we couldn't be supported um, with JobKeeper payments. Um, and a lot of the, um, the state funding was only for businesses that have run for over five years. So we are kind of in the middle of that. So we've mm-hmm. had to really find creative ways to keep afloat and we've really been supported by our community via this quarantine workshop series and all the donations that um, are coming in that are going to be keeping us afloat in terms of any excess bills or rent that we can't pay um, so we can keep keep it open and going as, fun, as much as we can.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true, like the sort of like how we sort of fit in that liminal space between uh, a sort of established space and a, uh, yeah, know, like, like we're a not-for-profit queer art space, which kind of slips through the cracks in a lot of our government uh, portfolios, I suppose. Um, also, we have a lot of like studio members. We have like 14 artist spaces. So it's been really hard trying to make sure that they can stay and that they feel supported. Um, we've managed to um, you know, negotiate with our landlord to get some reduced rent and pass that on to our studio members. Um, but yeah, that's been, a bit of a struggle lots of emails and phone calls and um, <laughs> stressing but yeah but yeah everyone's been so great like and reaching out through through instagram and like online and um has been pretty much one of the only ways that we have been able to get the support that we needed we certainly haven't felt very supported uh from the federal
6: government <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah um i think yeah what you've mentioned there um was leading into my next question is how you'd like to see the government protect and endorse the arts industry more. You guys have mentioned how um, there's a, it's a volunteer-based sort of um, organisation as a lot of arts industries are. Um, mm-hmm. Also with that sort of like that five-year rule and like how the openings and um, inclusion of JobKeeper, why do you think the arts industry is so important in Australia?
6: Um, as someone who's grown up Um, being a part of a council art group, Signal, um, it's really given me an opportunity to be involved in lots of different art forms, lots of different communities. It's given me hope when I didn't have an upbringing that would provide that kind of support. Um, That's why I'm particularly passionate about arts and um, community programs, because I think it's extremely important for, especially people who are isolated, and even more so than in this case, people being physically isolated as well. Um, yeah, so I think that's the most important thing, bringing people together and creating um, connections and opportunities. It's a really, being part of the arts, um, it's a very good way to, to meet people
2: yeah i I think there's definitely a kind of spiritual dimension to art that um gets ignored a bit of the time like it that coming together and that making stuff together and kind of almost like consensus building around a sort of cultural imaginary is very important and needs to happen for us to negotiate Um, you know how we deal with each other and how we exist and communicate Um, that's so important and it's so important to have that on a local level so otherwise you're just sort of just what consuming media that's been sort of produced I don't know overseas for other audiences not being produced like by the people who are living here for audiences that they know you know Um, and I think people love that about the arts industry and that's why it's so popular but I think it also makes it kind of subversive for a sort of government who maybe doesn't have a lot of the same ideals that a lot of people who exist in the arts industry have. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I think as my, co- my co-hosts and I have actually been discussing what you guys have sort of just answered that question with, um, how it is perhaps this sort of period in our lives, this pandemic period, has sort of allowed us to reassess how we see our community and the importance of it in a wider scale in things like the federal government where we're not happy <laughs> with how people are being treated and discriminated by the government. Um, thanks for that answer for, for both of you. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I will get into the more exciting part. Um, can you give either one of you, I'd Go for it. Um, Can you give our listeners at 3CR a little explanation into what Pink Embers Quarantine Club is and why you started it?
2: All right. Yeah, you're the workshop manager. Yeah. If you're heading this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
6: So the Quarantine Club started um, as a way to continue our physical workshops and where the the four directors well, we have four directors at Pink Amber and three of us are teaching the workshops. So um, we're putting all the donations going into the shop and the workshops that we're teaching. I'm teaching beginners ceramics and I send out kits for you to be able to make a little pot. Um, And Aaron is doing a comic panel workshop.
2: Yeah, that's this Thursday, Uh, starting this Thursday, a comic workshop goes for four weeks.
6: Yeah, and, um, and Francis Cannon is doing um, self-portrait workshops, which mm-hmm. are really great. Um, and, yeah, and we we also teach workshops together, which we do embroidery workshops, and we're going to be theming it around animals, teaching you how to do fur and scales and feathers and everything you need to do to embroider some animals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it started... Um, to provide us some support for our our bills and the rent that we couldn't afford in the reduction of um, workshop sales but also our physical um, shop sales because we have a a shop front which we can't have open at the moment.
2: Yes, we're sitting in the shop front right now but uh, we've got like, uh, there's like a bike in it and there's like all this (laughs) like stuff. We've got an online store as well so like part of the store has just been converted into like a,
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sending out the orders and the packaging. <laughs> no, but, great. Um, I was saying to you two before pre interview how I was a little bit concerned about getting involved in any of these things because I'm not the most creative person in the world when it comes to art. Um, is this for all levels of artistry? <laughs> Can any sort of artist join in with you guys with this?
2: Definitely is. Yeah. We have, um, they're all beginners classes. Um, so we are starting from the very beginning on each of these. Um, Uh, projects Um, yeah you don't have to have any special skills
6: Uh,
2: yeah you should just and like there's no you know no risk no reward (laughs) I mean um, there's really like you like you can pay as much as you want
6: yeah so yeah all the workshops you
2: won't leave disappointed (laughs) yeah
6: and you pay it's a sliding scale so you can pay what you can afford Mm -hmm. so you won't um, yeah so it's a lot more accessible than most workshops and that you'd usually have to invest in totally and we
2: we uh, we are very much like the kind of artists who um we you know we don't like to make things too complicated and we've been running workshops on and off for like maybe almost 10 years now mm. um so we've you know we've got a good handle on how to uh work with the zone of proximal development of
0: students <laughs> Um, definitely. And I think, um, leading into my next question, um, the talk about the accessibility, um, it's great for internet. Um, obviously a lot of people can get involved, especially the younger generation who are well equipped with, um, the internet. Do you see any negatives or downsides to actually having your workshops online rather than being in like a physical presence? And can you see yourselves being able to work on that?
6: Yeah. So the the main the main issue that we've had is just not having an uh, as much conversation easily flowing, um, mm. which is much harder when it's over screens and different audio kind of levels. Um, yeah. Basically, the the vibe mm. <laughs> is hard to make it as comfortable and fun yeah. as in in real life. But then again, people who are very um, socially anxious. Have been really enjoying being able to, to um, tune in from home, so that's been that's been good for good for that. Not as good for other reasons.
2: Yeah, I think for that reason, like I think there is like an, an another audience who appreciates um, being able to have an online workshop, um, and we previously had never done anything like that before. So maybe we would want to keep doing that for those audiences who don't feel comfortable going to a space and also people who maybe are further away from Coburg than than um they would like to travel. Um but yeah, I do I do miss the vibes, you know. Yeah. I miss like some flowers out and, you know, lighting some candles and yeah, you,
6: know. you
0: can't have any <laughs> any nice or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Where are my essential oils? Yeah. No, it's DIY from home. Um that so do you think that if and when this pandemic does end will you continue to go online to help obviously the arts industry um while continuing to be in your studio do you think it's a possibility to continue all of this online and do you think it'll be as popular after the pandemic
6: That's a really interesting question um I think I think I would like to do certain things online and especially as our audience grows, um, being able to provide it for people who aren't necessarily in the country or can't access um, for a variety of reasons, it would be really good to have that option, especially Mm. now that we're more familiar with it, Um, because it does, it it can reach a wider audience, which is exciting. Mm. That is
2: exciting. I think... I really like the idea of keeping Pink Gamba kind of almost, like, localised to Coburg, though.
6: What I'd like to
2: do is, like, maybe provide people that have studios with us, um, because we have 14 artists with us more, maybe. So some of them are doubled. But, yeah, providing them opportunity to share their skills with a wider audience would be good. Mm. off the the great Coburg talent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> definitely i think it, it is and i think that's very important to continue that local aspect of it um mm-hmm. but the pandemic's just shown a lot of wider opportunities that we can all sort of take especially for the arts and entertainment industries um so to find out more i guess you want people to head over to Com. that's yeah.
2: right yeah and then there should be a little um button that says workshops and that's all you gotta click to get to them.
6: Yeah. Um, I'm
2: pretty sure um, they're all available at the moment. Frances uh, Frances Cannon just did one of her workshops last week, which was sold out, but they've got a few more spots in their their second online quarantine self-portraits workshop on the 2nd of June.
6: Um,
2: I've got a few more spots left in my online comics workshop, which is on May the 28th. And yeah, and then if you're doing your ceramics workshop on the 24th of yeah. June?
6: Yeah. yeah, so your material kits will be sent out um, and you'll get some pigment to make some coloured um, slip, which is really exciting because usually um, doing coloured work is very expensive, but it makes it really accessible this way, um, which would be really fun. And we're going to be doing... That that one on the 24th of June, which is a one-off, and Aaron and I are going to be doing our Beginners Embroidery Series, which is four weeks running, and it starts on the 25th of June.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a workshop we've done um, previously with Signal, so we've kind of, like, been able to test this one out. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the online workshops that we're not coming in completely fresh to. Yeah. So, <laughs> the- <laughs> Time around for the embroidery workshop. It worked really well online, actually, embroidery.
6: Um, Yeah. yeah. And uh, something that's been really good is being able to um, have screen up close to demonstrating, especially stitches. Uh, People have been saying that they've been able to learn very quickly because rather than being in a class and having to look from afar from the teacher, Mm. you're right up close with the camera angle online, Mm. which is really neat.
2: Yeah. I miss being able to help people with their knots though.
6: Yeah. Know. Yeah, when you get a knot, you have to do it on your own. <laughs> yeah,
5: to...
0: Oh no, that's great. <laughs> no, that's yeah. No, there are obviously some very big pros, but also some sad little cons with <laughs> with that. But no, it all sounds very exciting. Um and I'm sure a lot of the other three CR listeners will be very interested. But thank you to you both for joining us today.
7: G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here I just want to send out a message to you all To stop the spread of COVID-19 Also known as the coronavirus It is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other Follow rules on social gatherings Wash your hands when appropriate And stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell But most of all, keep strong stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye.